Last week, we began to look at our values, if you will, here at Redeemer. What we said, the things that are important to us, our collective soul. We said these aren't necessarily the things that we do, but hopefully characterize all that we do. And last week, we began with the glory of God. And I better say this, we always do communion at this point. We're going to do communion at the end of the service today. So don't get nervous. I didn't forget. We looked at the glory of God. And this week, we want to look at the gospel of God. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab your phone or whatever you might have with you. would love for you to see this passage we're going to look at today. One called it a glowing statement on the gospel. Another, a condensed but comprehensive account of salvation. Perhaps the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament. In Titus chapter 3. And if you'll skip down just for fun real quick in verse 5, he saved us. That's the main verb of the passage we're looking at today. He saved us. And I'll admit that the word gospel does not appear in this passage. And so here I am preaching on the gospel of God. And yet the word gospel doesn't appear here, but I'll remind us, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved. And so Paul says here that he saved us. And Paul says that it is by the gospel that we are saved. And as we get into these verses we just see, even though the word gospel is not used, there is gospel drenched all over it. The context is that Paul is writing to Titus. He had been with Titus on the island of Crete, ministering with him there, and then he left, Paul did, and he left Titus there. You turn back in chapter one, verse five. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife. And so in chapter one, appoint elders and here are the qualifications for the kind of men to appoint as elders. And then in chapter two, verse one, Paul urges Titus, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. He says, Titus, I want you to teach the older men in verse 2 to live like this. And in verse 3, the older women, teach them to live like this so that, in verse 4, they can encourage the young women to live like this. In verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to live like this. And 9, urge bond slaves to live like this. Titus, I urge you, teach the brothers and sisters in your church to live a life of godliness. And the motivation for this in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then in chapter 3, in verses 1 and 2, he's going to encourage them again to live in a particular way. But the context here is in relationship with a non-Christian world. To civil authorities there in verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed, and then probably a shift in verse 2, not, not just to civil authorities, but to all of your non-Christian acquaintances, those who do not know Christ, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. How are you and I to treat them, to be in relationship with them? Verse 2, remind them to malign no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Paul wants God's people in relationship to an unbelieving world not to be proud, not to be haughty, but to be loving and kind. Malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And then he's going to ground this in this fact, that God was kind and loving and merciful and patient and gracious towards you and me when we didn't deserve it at all. And as he builds that case, he's going to give us, as one said, a glowing statement of the gospel. Six things I think we're going to see here. First is our need for salvation. Look in verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Some think he's working in pairs here, foolish and disobedient. Foolish probably carries the idea that before we came to know Christ, before God was gracious to us and opened our eyes, we were spiritually without understanding. We didn't know God rightly. We didn't understand our sin at all. We didn't understand how we were to be saved or anything like that. We were foolish, and we were disobedient. Disobedient to God, no doubt, but oftentimes that disobedience shows itself in disobedience to governing authorities. It shows itself in disobedience to parents and the like. Be kind to non-Christians in your life because you too were foolish. You too were disobedient 
deceived and enslaved. Both of these verbs are passive verbs, that we were the victims of evil forces that we could not control. It's not only that we were foolish, but we were deceived by the evil one. And not only were we disobedient, but we were enslaved. John Stott says, doubtless Paul is alluding to the evil one, that arch deceiver who blinds people's minds and that arch tyrant who also takes people captive. We were his dupes and his slaves. We were malicious and envious. Malice is to wish people evil. And envy is to begrudge or to resent their good. And then finally, we were hateful and hating one another. The hostility we experienced in our relationships was reciprocal. You and I might be tempted in relationship with non-Christian family or non-Christian neighbors or non-Christian folks that we work with or whoever we, to, to be prideful, to be arrogant, to be haughty in relationship to them, to get mad at them, to be, what in the world are they doing? Why in the world would they live in such a way? And Paul says, no, don't do that. Because you once were the exact same way. interesting, Paul doesn't talk about it in this context, but I think it's worth noting. In this context, it's you once were, but now. In the other places in the New Testament where he talks about that, like Ephesians chapter 2, you once were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you formerly walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, and you were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, you once were, but now in Christ you have been saved. You once were, and it courts and deserves the wrath of God. In Colossians, you don't have to turn there, but in Colossians chapter 3, it's another one of these, you once were, but now. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now, because of Christ, live a different way. But here's our need for salvation in verse 3. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hateful. The source of salvation, verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. We keep going. 
When the kindness of God our Savior, his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you've been around here at all, you know that when I talk about these things, I talk about the love of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the, um, the grace of God, and I just pile up the words, it's because of texts like this one. The kindness of God, his love for mankind, according to his mercy, his grace. The words just leap off the page. We love to sing 10,000 reasons. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. Carries the idea of generous. When the, when the kindness of God and his love for mankind appeared. We don't sing this one, but it's a great line. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. If you and I tried to write about the love of God, there's not enough ink in the universe and the scroll is not large enough. The mercy of God down there, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We love to sing, our sins they are many, his mercy. Is more. It's, it's God taking a, a pitiful posture towards us. He shows pity towards us because we are sinners deserving of his wrath, unable to do anything to fix it. And he shows mercy to us and, of course, grace so that being justified by his grace, this is God's goodness towards those who are guilty and deserve only wrath. And so we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The kindness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. It reminds us, I think, of Exodus 34 that we looked at last week when Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I'll tell you about it. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins. This is the source of our salvation. It is the wonderful heart of God. The ground of our salvation. We get to that 
But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of, which, basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. The grounds of your salvation and mine is not your good deeds nor mine. You may be visiting today and you may be wondering what the message of the Bible is and maybe you come with preconceived notions just figuring that what this book is is a book of law and that it's a book that calls you to do better. That God is great and you're a sinner and you better shape up is what this book says. There's rungs in the ladder to climb and you better get to going. There are hoops to jump through, so you better stretch. And nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible does not even hint towards the idea that God is great, you have sinned, and therefore you need to do things in order to earn his favor. Rather, it shouts kindness, love, mercy, grace. That we're not saved based on deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now that is all wrapped up in the work of Christ, which we see maybe in that little word, and we've got to flesh it out. But there when he says, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. It's the, it's the Greek word that we get the word epiphany. We saw it there in chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Paul used it again back in 2 Timothy chapter 1. who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing, the epiphany of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So when Paul says here that when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he has in mind the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first coming of Christ. When he appeared, when the eternal Son of God became a man and lived a life and died upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again, that's the grounds by which you and I are saved. That's the grounds of our gospel, not our deeds which we have done in righteousness, but his mercy in the appearance of Jesus Christ and his work primarily upon the cross of Calvary for us. And then we might say the means of our salvation here, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly 
through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Most of the commentators point back to Ezekiel 36, where the prophet Ezekiel looked forward to the new covenant that would be instituted for God's people, and here's what he said about it. In Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Whenever God works by his grace in the heart of a sinner like you and me, and we, we, we turn to him and we look to Christ, it is because the Holy Spirit of God was at work in us to regenerate us, to make us new. And when we do, we are washed. Ezekiel, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness. Praise God, huh? Because the greatest need of a sinner is forgiveness. It's cleansing. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we get. He washes away all of our sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We are washed. We are made clean. And the Holy Spirit of God comes in and begins to renew us, to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. It's through this Spirit whom God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace. So the washing and regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit and being justified by his grace, to be justified means to be declared righteous when you yourself are not righteous. It's the glory of the gospel. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. That's why we need to be forgiven of our sins. And then the righteousness of Jesus Christ is counted towards us. And God declares us, considers us to be righteous before him. It's amazing stuff and it comes by his grace. We didn't deserve it. And then we might say the goal of our salvation, so that in verse seven, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A Christian has assurance that having been forgiven of all of their sins, the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to them, the gift of the Holy Spirit 
poured out within them, they have the assurance of eternal life. The Apostle Peter put it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, has bless, or who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. Paul says we are heirs. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In Romans 5, in Romans 8, many believe they set up kind of an inclusio, a beginning and an end of Paul's argument from 5 to 8. And in both chapter 5 in the early verses and in chapter 8, hope pops up over and over again. Because of what God has done for his people through his son Jesus Christ, we have hope the assured expectation of a future inheritance, unclouded fellowship with God in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Paul says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. I think he has from verse 3 all the way up to that point in mind. What I've just said, he said, is trustworthy that though we were sinners, God saved us of his kindness, his love, his mercy, and his grace. Not based upon our works, but based upon his mercy. He washed us clean. He's renewing us by his spirit. He's declared us righteous, and we have the assured expectation of eternal glory. It's a trustworthy statement, and Concerning these things, Titus, Mitch, I want you to speak confidently. Speak confidently about this message, which in so many words is the gospel, which we love. The evidence of it in verse 8, so that those who believe God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. In context there, engage in good deeds may specifically have in mind what he called us to in verses 1 and 2. Be subject to rulers, to authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good deed, don't malign anyone, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, but God in his kindness saved us. Therefore, engage in these sorts of things. That little phrase, though, good deeds, is used all throughout the book of Titus so that we could probably expand it to mean any and all acts of righteousness, kindness, love. Paul is adamant, is he not, not only here but elsewhere in the New Testament that we are not saved by our good deeds, but we are saved for good deeds. Good deeds are the fruit of salvation in a believer's life and the evidence of salvation in a believer's life. 
There's glory there, is there not? This is our salvation, and this is our gospel. We love the glory of God, and we love the gospel of God. The gospel is the good news. That's what the word means for sinners like you and me. It's this this gospel, this love of God through Jesus Christ that washes us clean and renews us by the Spirit and gives us hope of eternal life. It's this gospel that is our only hope. We think about John 6 where Jesus was teaching some hard things and and some who maybe considered themselves disciples listened to Jesus, said, boy, that's tough, and turned and went home. And Jesus looked at his other disciples and said, are y'all gonna leave too? And Peter said, where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. We look at passage like this, we consider the gospel and we say, where else are we going to go? We talked about this at our men's Bible study Friday morning, but I think it's so true. You can take every other religion in the world and you, you put it on a table over here that says, do. Do this and do that in order to make yourself right with God. Christianity and Christianity alone you put on this table And above it, you write, done. Because it's all done for us. This should humble us. You and I cannot save ourselves. And yet, it should make us the most confident people in the world. It humbles me because it says, Mitch, you are a sinner, worse than you know, deserving only of God's wrath, and you can't do anything to fix it. Confident because it says God did it all for you. God loved you before the foundation of the world, and God sent his son Jesus Christ to live and die and rise for you and God opened up your heart and by trusting in him your sins are forgiven you are made right with God his Holy Spirit is making you new and you will most assuredly be with him forever and ever and it's not based upon you it's based upon the promise of God and so like Tim Keller said the gospel is this we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is the way that we become right with God. It's also the power for a new kind of life because in the gospel comes not just the forgiveness of sins, but the gift of the Holy Spirit who is renewing us and empowering us for a new kind of life. It's the message that we have to share with others. It reminds us that there is no place for pride or haughtiness in the life of a believer. And we'll just close on this and then remember Christ through the Lord's Supper. 
Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, Redeemer, when he said that, he had in mind the gospel. The love of Christ for us controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that through your son, Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven, made new, and have the hope of eternal life. And it's not because we do better. It's not because we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's only because we trust in what you have done through Jesus Christ for us. I pray if there's any here today who maybe they came in and they were trusting in themselves, trusting in their own spiritual resume, that maybe through this passage, even now, you would help them to see that their resume is not enough. In fact, they need to crumble it up, throw it away, and simply come with open hands of faith, confessing themselves to be a sinner before God, calling out to him for forgiveness and new life through Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose for them. And Lord, those of us who do know the Savior, may it be true of us as it was of Paul that knowing the love of God through Christ Jesus, we would no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and rose on our behalf. And we'll pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.